The best offense is a good defense. Um, that was a quotation a long time ago that was originally given, as history would say, at least the one I read, to George Washington, and it was a military strategy. But over all of these years, it's come to be used as a num- in a number of ways, and perhaps in our day most prominently when it comes to sports, and maybe chiefly football. Someone has said when it comes to defense that defense wins championships, And there have been a lot of famous NFL defenses that have been given a lot of accolades over the years. And with it, some fierce nicknames to, I guess, show their defensive prowess. Um, The one that came to my mind first, uh, the Steel Curtain, Pittsburgh Steelers. I I know each one of you are going to cheer when it comes to your team. The Vikings, that's my wife's team. Purple People Eaters. Orange Crush. Uh, Denver Broncos, the fearsome foursome. That was the front line of the way back in the day, Los Angeles Rams. There was the doomsday defense. I faintly hear John Coleman cheering for the Cowboys there. Uh, the New York Sack Exchange. We even had Mark Gastineau in our church for a little while here for the New York Jets. Killer Bees. I never heard of that one, but Miami Dolphins. The Monsters of the Midway. You can't forget that. Chicago Bears. And perhaps last but not least, the Big Blue Wrecking Crew. That was the New York Giants. And certainly, uh, Peter, as he writes this epistle, if he knew all about that, maybe he would agree with that principle. But when it comes to giving out the gospel in tough times, the statement is true. The best offense is a good defense. But he would change it, I think, at least this way. Not defense wins championships, but defense wins souls. Um, The New Testament word for defense, it doesn't refer to anything military strategy. It's not a sports strategy. It's a gospel strategy. And the word is the word apologia, and it means apologetics in the English. That's where we get defending our faith. And it's about knowing how to defend your hope far more than your home court in some athletic event. And the word is used... 11 times in the New Testament, nine out of those 11 times it's used of the Apostle Paul. And it always pictures a court scene where you're standing in front of a judge and you're defending yourself. You're giving an apologetic. You're giving a testimony about why why you are not guilty. You're defending yourself. And one other time in the book of Acts, it refers to a man named Alexander giving a defense. And the last time is our text. The only time really hardly outside of the book of Acts Um, that it's used. And Peter is addressing Christians as he opens up this epistle. He calls them in the diaspora. They're they're spread out all over Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. And and they're spread out away from Israel. And God identifies them through Peter in the epistle by calling them in the first verse, elect exiles. He calls them sojourners. He repeats that Identity marker in chapter 2 and verse 11. And that's important for us to reference because identity determines activity. He wants them to know when he challenges them about their apologetics that they have to realize first who they are. They are temporary residents. They really don't belong here. Their citizenship, as Paul would say, is in heaven And they don't always, therefore, fit in this culture. Christians are not people who are at home in America because our home is in heaven. But we do have 
a citizenship and we have responsibility here. He says you have been chosen by God, chosen out of this culture to work within this culture with the gospel. We've been picked out. So, and as a result, sometimes Peter's readers have found out they were going to be picked on as well. And First Peter, as we sung this morning, is a book of the Bible about suffering. It's about fiery trials. It's about being mistreated for being a Christian. And the question is that Peter poses in our text and all throughout the epistle, to be honest with you, is how do you face attacks on your Christianity and on your faith differently? Because we're not like everybody else, not because we're better or superior, but because God has worked in our lives. How do we have a good defense when the culture all around us is always on the offense seemingly against Christianity a lot of the time. And you can see it becoming more and more prominent and commonplace even in the day in which we live. There's attacks on creation. Evolution is more popular perhaps now than ever before, even amongst Christianity and in theological circles of scholarship. The seven days literal of creation is no longer in vogue. Adam and Eve are being questioned about whether they were really ever literal figures. Millions of years in God's creation have now been acceptable, even in Christian scientists. Attacking not only creation, but attacking the sanctity of life. At the front end of life with abortion, at the, the end of life with youth in Asia, uh, really no one from beginning to end of life is actually safe any longer. Attacking marriage with homosexual marriage, attacking the family and what it means and the definition of it, attacking identity today, the onslaught against gender and who gets to decide if you're a guy or a girl and who designs and race itself as we have unfortunately been experiencing in such a big way in recent days in, even so, and then attacking the Bible, its veracity, its authority. Recently, a book was published called Inspired Imperfection, talking about the inspiration of the Bible, that God put errors in there on purpose. And you have all this taking place, and you can't really help but look around and understand that Christianity in many facets is being attacked. If you're familiar at all with Winston Churchill... Uh, during the 40s or earlier, actually a little bit earlier, uh, in World War II era, he wrote a six-volume history of World War II. And the very first volume in those six books was titled The Gathering Storm. It was a book about Europe's long denial of the Nazi threat and how really not accepting that they were going to be at odds in conflict with the Nazis and what they believed um, the storm came and they weren't ready for it. I think there's a good admonition for all of us in an ever-increasing secular age. If we have ears to hear, there are distant rumblings of thunder. Skies across the landscape of America are growing darker and darker all the time on the onslaught against Christianity. Even as Albert Moeller, who wrote a book recently entitled The Gathering Storm... He terms it the displacement of Christianity in the United States. He says we are rapidly and progressively being de-Christianized. And as another commentator, Oliver Roy, said, when de-Christianization de begins, it never takes a step backward. We are not moving and progressing toward Christianity being more favorable. In fact, complete the opposite. And so in a culture like that, as Christian exiles in American culture in the 21st century... How do we have a good defense when our faith is questioned and perhaps, 
perhaps not too far down the road, even more than being questioned. Well, Peter would say, and I would like to say, first of all, that a good defense starts with a good life. And he says, beginning in verse 13 with a rhetorical question, he asks his readers and he asks us, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? Zealous for good. Well, what does zealous for good look like? Well, the word good is interchangeable. It's actually in the New Testament a couple different words for it. But they really mean the same thing. They're pretty virtually synonymous. It means inherently good. I mean, it's just good to everyone. Christians should be known to be those kinds of people, Peter says. We should be known to be good people, even, listen, contextually, even in the midst of an evil empire and an evil, evil culture, even when we are being mistreated and not treated well or treated good, can I say. Now, in our text, you'll notice that there are four times that the word good is used. We're going to make more of that in just a little bit. But who will harm you, verse 13 If you are zealous for good, every time in our text the word good is used is attached to a negative circumstance. So he's not asking Christians to be good just when things are going good. When the culture treats you well, when everybody's favorable to Christianity. And we've experienced that in America in our past history. That is no longer the case, he says. So what do you do when Christianity isn't seen as good anymore for everyone? He says, who will harm you? If you are zealous for what is good. Verse 16, having a good conscience. When do you have a good conscience? Well, when you're slandered. When people say things about you that aren't even true. And they try to ruin your reputation. That's when you're good. See, verse 16 again. Those who revile you and your good behavior. See, you act good even when people are talking evil and reviling you. And saying things that aren't true about you. See, verse 17. Suffer for doing good. Put them together. Harm you. Slander you. Revile you. You suffer. That's what you do. See, good is not only being positive, but it's being good in the midst of evil. See, Jesus put it this way in Luke's gospel. In chapter 6, the Lucan version of the Beatitudes, he says in verse 27, Do good to those who hate you. Verse 33, And if you do good to those who do good, what benefit is it to you? For do not sinners do the same thing? In other words, same thing Peter's saying. In fact, it may be an echo of Jesus. See, he says, don't just do good when people do good to you. But do good to them when they hate you. Jesus says in verse 35, but love your enemies and do good. Here's how, what? Lend money. Lend money to people expecting nothing in return and you'll get great reward, he says. And then you'll prove that you are sons of the most high God, he says. This is zealous for what is good. The word zealous is a word that's just what it sounds. It's intensity, In fact, there was a group of revolutionaries in first century Rome in Jesus' day called the Zealots, the noun form of the word. And they they were called Sicarii at times because they carried a curved knife in which they'd walk up into large crowds of people and get next to a Roman soldier and they would plunge that knife into his back and walk on. It was a revolution. It was a violent one. And that's why they were called zealots because they had a lot of zeal for the revolution that they were in. And it's crazy because the, the 
countercultural view of Jesus about how to go about good, he chose as one of his disciples, Matthew, the Synoptic Gospels, and the book of Acts, all call one of Jesus' disciples Simon the Zealot. And in his 12 disciples, not only did he have a zealot who was fiery and radical against Rome, he also had Matthew who worked for Rome. Now imagine sometimes around the fire in the discipleship group having those two have a conversation. I mean, they are completely opposite ends of the spectrum. But Jesus says, I want you to be a zealot, just not the the Jewish kind against Rome. I want you to be the Jesus kind. A new kind of revolution. That's what Jesus, it's a revolution of good. It's a new kind of zealot. It's a zealot for good, he says. Not zealous to retaliate against your enemies. Not zealous to win an argument. Not zealous to gossip, gossip and slander back when you've done, been done the same. Not zealous to believe the worst in someone. Not zealous to condemn someone without having a conversation about their views first. He says, no, no, a different kind of zeal, he says. In verse 13, it's a little bit of a contrast because the two statements, 1 and 13 and verse 14, have the if clause in it. Can you see it there in the text? If you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer. So if you're doing what's good, and then by, even when you're trying to do good and it's not treated as good, you actually get harmed They actually, you suffer for righteousness sake. Here's what he says. You will be blessed. Now, what kind of revolutionary thought is that? The revolution for good sees suffering for Jesus' sake as a blessing. There are three beatitudes in 1 Peter. In the opening verses, there's one about God. There's two about Christians. One is the text I just read you, and the other one is chapter 4 and verse 14. It says, and if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So you are blessed if you get verbally abused, and in our text you are blessed if you get physically abused. No, not, not in any way, shape, or form is he saying you're going to be happy about it, but you consider it a blessing that God would count you worthy. See, that's the key. That's the apologetic, he says. The first part of having apologetic is this. Is here's how we need to defend our faith. We need to defend our faith and always be ready by having a good life. See, a good life. That's the first aspect. And that good comes by the way of suffering and the way that we can demonstrate it. It's a kind of a definition of happiness that's redefined, reoriented. It's not that I, the good life is not when I don't suffer, It's when I'm called on by the will of God to suffer that I'm willing to take it for Jesus' sake because I love him so much. It's an upside-down revolution. And that's what we need in America. That's what we need as Christians as the gathering storm of anti-Christian rhetoric and even more may be coming down the pike, so to speak. We need to have this kind of apologetic. One that is ready to give a defense for our faith by a good life that we live. But he's got more to say in verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And I want to add just one little line because it says, but in contrast, in your hearts. Now in this next phrase, here's what he's going to say. Where do you get the ability to suffer like that? Where do you get the ability to consider it a blessing from God 
that when you stand up for your faith, it costs you something. Where does that perspective come from? Well, here's where it doesn't come from. It doesn't come from when you have fear of your circumstance or of your persecutors ruling your heart. But in contrast, you know what should be in your heart? That Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a contrast of the content of your heart. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And I would add in contrast because of the word there, but in your hearts. Literally, it says, don't be afraid of their fears. If you look throughout 1 Peter, fear is a common thread. And here's the choice. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse, chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So there's these verses that challenge us, hey, we need to fear God. But he's also saying, be very leery of this because there's also the temptation not to fear God, but to fear man. 3, 6, he says, you are Sarah's children if, listen to this, look what's coupled with it, if you do good and... You do not fear anything that is frightening. See, doing good doesn't fear. And then our text says, have no fear of them. A good defense is one that fears God and not the circumstance, not the situation, not the people who may be against you. So a good defense is good on the outside by what we do and on the inside by what we don't do. A, a zeal for God, you know what it looks like? It's, it's good, the good life lived out in every way possible and every facet of our life. Go down to verse 16 real quickly. He says, having a good conscience. So we have, the Bible says we're zealous for good. We have a good conscience. We have good behavior and we do good. See, he, he just can't get past it in First Peter that one of the greatest things that you can do to present Christ to an unbelieving and even opposing world is that we do good and we're zealous about it. We're intentional about it. We're intense about it. And it affects the outside of our lives, good deeds, good behavior, and the inside, he says. Having a good heart and a good conscience, he says. So do you have a good defense? And I'm basically asking the question, are you living a good life? Not because we're trying to earn or merit God's favor, but because we have received by grace God's favor. And we're seeking to live good, yes, for his glory, but for the good of others around us. Is your attitude and action portraying the good that God would allow us or want us to do? See, our defense against evil is that we don't participate on the outside and we don't let it in on the inside. Because he says you will be reviled, you will be slandered, there's possibility that you will be harmed. So there are verbal attacks, there are physical attacks, but you realize this, in the end they are all heart attacks. You understand what he's saying? It's the evil trying to penetrate in you. And so why is he so adamant? That when you're mistreated like that, verbally and physically, that you can't fear. You know why? Because fear, when it gets on the inside, paralyzes you. You will not be able to do the good. You'll be so worried about yourself and how people are treating you and what's going to happen to you. You know what's going to happen? You won't be thinking about others, he says. You can't. Because when fear rules your heart, it paralyzes you. It controls you. So he wants you to understand that what's in your heart matters, especially when it comes to this type of persecution. 
Are you controlled by the fear of man or by the fear of God? And the difference will be what you allow in your heart. Peter, often in this epistle, says how crucial it is to not just be good externally, but internally. He wants you to have, and Christians need to have, if they're going to have a living, a good life, apologetic, they have to have a certain kind of heart. He says, when you were born again, 1 Peter 1, God gave you a pure heart. You have a pure heart. He talks about women who have unbelieving husbands in chapter 3 and verse 4. And he says, you know, it's an inner beauty. It's the hidden person of the heart, he says. Chapter 3 and verse 8, right before our text, he says, you know how you forgive other people even inside the church? You do it because you have a certain heart, a tender heart. Not one that is looking to really press down on people and really give it to them when they offend you. You know what? You have a loving, tender, compassionate heart, quickly forgiving others. And then he comes to chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, you know what you need to have? You need to have a certain kind of heart. If you're going to have apologetic, your life being that, that is always ready to defend your faith with a good life, here's what you're going to have to do in your heart. You can't let the fear in, but you have to let the Lord control it. Acknowledge, set apart, sanctify Christ as Lord. But here's what it means. Those people who are saying things about you, talking about you, doing slanderous things, saying that to others, reviling you, even trying to harm you, here's what you have to know to keep the fear out and the Lord in. He's in charge, not them. Sanctify Christ as Lord. He is sovereign over your situation. They are not. So you don't have to fear them Fear him because he's in control of you, your circumstances, and those people who oppose you. This is literally a quotation of Isaiah 8 in verses 12 through 13, which read, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Don't fear them. Here's what he says. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Honor as holy, set apart in your heart. Let him be your fear. Let him, don't you fear people. Don't fear people who might reject your Christianity, oppose your Christianity, mock your Christianity. Don't fear them, young people at school. Don't fear them in the science class when they're talking about evidence. Don't, don't fear holding the beliefs that the scripture has. They, they, they don't get antiquated. They're not outdated. Don't be afraid to hold those things, he says. You fear God in your heart. Let him be your fear, The Septuagint says, let him be your dread. So how do we have apologetics in our day? Well, we need to be ready to defend the faith, first of all, with our lives. And then second of all, probably the one we think more commonly of, is we need to be ready to defend our faith or the faith with our lips. He says in verse 15, sanctify or honor Christ as Lord is holy, Always being prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. See, your life, hear me, your life is the platform for your lips. The gospel presentation, according to Peter, involves or includes both. It's holistic. It's your life with your lips. It's not one or the other. It's not life Without words, it's or words without life. It's both. 
And he says, always be ready. And I take it to mean always at any time, but specifically in the context, always meaning even when you're verbally barraged, even when you might be physically attacked. He said, always, no matter how bad the situation is, if anyone's asking you in every difficult circumstance, let your lip apologetic flow out of your life apologetic. And if they ask you for a reason, and the word reason is a word, if they want to hear out of your own mouth, what is it that you hope in? And I know hope is on the inside, but for Peter, it's a hope that comes on the outside, from the inside. In other words, they see something different in your life, at your job. See, you have your boss gets on your case. You're different than they are in how you respond to it. See, they know you have a different hope on the outside because you know you have a different heart on the inside. And so someone may ask you, hey, why don't you retaliate? Why don't you want to take out vengeance on others when they talk about you and mistreat you like that. They say, why do you do that? Why don't you go from zero to 60 and really blow up and get upset? Everybody else is, and, and they want to know why, see. You don't fear people who threaten you. Why is it that in the most difficult circumstances, they look at your life and say, what, is, what kind of peace do you have? When things are going wrong and seemingly are out of control and maybe your options are limited or down to none, what is it that keeps you calm? They want to know. They want to know, where did you get that happiness? A kind of happiness and a kind of joy that isn't diminished by everyone and everything around you? I mean, you're going to have this happen in your life, and you still come to work or school, and you're happy? You do good when other people have done wrong to you? I mean, the very person who talked to you like that, and you're going to do that good thing for them? Where does that come from, they ask. Why in the world would you ever do that? I suppose the question then is, is anyone asking you any questions recently? I mean, if we have a hope in us, do we also have the answer? See, is anyone seeing the difference in your life? I mean, to the point where they want to know where it comes from? And, and oftentimes the reason that never happens or seldom does is because we leave out the concluding phrase in verse 15. You do it with gentleness and respect. Peter wants you to know it's not just what you say in your apologetic. It's how you say it. He doesn't say, and say it with anger and hatred. He doesn't say, Say it with sarcasm and, condens- um, and, and to rudeness. He doesn't say, say it with harshness and meanness. He says, but with control, see, meekness, power under control, gentleness. It's the very thing that describes Jesus. See, he wants you to know you have to have on the inside, it's the heart thing, if it's going to come out right on the outside. And the question is, Does anyone believe this anymore? I mean, does anyone want to do these types of things anymore? And then he closes our passage this morning with a little phrase in verse 17. See how the little word for connects it? What's the motivation behind, see, a good conscience and good behavior 
and all the good that we do, how can we do all of that, Pastor Walker, in our culture, with everything that's going on, how in the world can I have a good defense that consists of a good life and things that are good coming out my lips? How can both of those be true at the same time when everyone else around me pretty much honestly is not doing any of those things? And even at times, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, because there's a mentality that goes with it, he says in verse 17, for it is better, see that? Oh my, that word is used constantly throughout the New Testament and specifically throughout the book of Hebrews. And it's almost ex- exclusively used to describe a content or a contrast. It's better means this is not as good as this is. See this, see this, this is better than that, he says. And what we think the good life is, is that, he says, for it's better to suffer for doing good. And we never in our lives think it's better in any way, shape, or form to suffer. And so we only go so far in doing good and then we cut it off because if you get too upset with me, you get too angry with me, and if it begins to cost me too much to do good, see, I stop doing it. And I might even resort to the same measures that someone else is using to get at me. And I end up doing evil. And here's the mindset. Peter says, I have to go this far. It's better, and you got to get the mind. It's better that if I did the will of God, and it's God who wants me to suffer, and God has a purpose in it, and God is using it specifically for the furtherance of the gospel, to be an apologetic for the gospel, that my suffering depicts Jesus' suffering, and people can see him through me when that happens. If that's his will, and that's his design, he says, it's better. It's better that I choose to do good. See the contrast? Do good and have to suffer for it, he says, than for doing evil. I'd rather be kind than at any point in a conversation be unkind. I'd rather be humble than to be arrogant and proud like some people with their words and actions are. You know, in the end, it's a new kind of apologetic, isn't it? The apologetics I see nowadays, unfortunately, mostly on social media and otherwise, and it doesn't matter pretty much where you are or who you are. Um, It could be a government person. It could be an average individual. I mean, we have people who are saying things even right down in the street here on Coozer Road, and there's protests because of people, what they say. But it's a new kind of apologetic. And people think right now, I can say what I want and my life doesn't have to match up with it. Peter would said, that's not a Christian apologetic. A Christian apologetic has your life and your lips and they go together. You cannot, hear me, you cannot come to church and vertically use your lips to say one thing and your life horizontally to do another. You cannot praise God And then use your mouth to curse people, as James has said. That's not a Christian apologetic. It's a holistic approach. It's it's both. Not either or, but both and. It's I say, my lips have my life as a platform. I have wanted to challenge you this morning as I close in this message and we close with the song in just a few minutes.
um, I, I think it would be wise, and it won't be hard for me, because I don't do much on there. I think it would be great. I remember back when Pastor Martins was here many, many years, I want to say 20 years ago, that he challenged us one time to have a TV fast. For 30 days, you just wouldn't watch TV. And I, I thought back in the day, wow. I mean, there's not nearly even, there's so much more on television now. I thought, wow, that's going to be so hard. 30 days, how can I not watch TV for 30? I'm going to miss this sporting event, you know, whatever. But we took that, and wow, I, I remember how much more I got done reading, studying, praying, being with others, my family. I mean, it was a great, let me tell you, here's my challenge to everyone at Faith Baptist Church. Let's go on a social media fast, right? For 30 days, could you do that? No, no Instagram, no Facebook, no posting. I, I know your life might come to an end, right? If you didn't do it. Listen, we need to get a grip, to be honest. I'll be flat honest. We need to get a grip on social media and what we do and what we say. You know why? Because we have a defense of our faith to uphold. And let me tell you this, and it needs to be a good defense. Hear me? Good defense. And that good needs to be from our life and from our lips. And I think it would be wise, in fact, more than wise, to take a break and examine ourselves. What kind of apologetic do I have? Am I ready always to defend my faith with my life and my lips? Or am I betraying the very gospel that I say that I defend by the way that I'm living and the way that I'm talking? You know, the old song says this. They shall know we are Christians. Can you finish it? By our love. Not by our rhetoric. See, we're to answer people, it says in 1 Peter in our text, to give a reason for our hope. Right now, we've been having to give a reason for our hate. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Our defense of the faith should be one that points to Jesus, that replicates his life an example of how, not only what we say, but how we say it. I pray that everything we say, online or offline, would back up a life of love, compassion, truth, and holiness, because the world is waiting to see that kind of Christianity come back again. Let's let them see it in us. Father, you are good and you do good. Father, we need to follow that example. To have a good defense, we need both a good life and good lips. We need our words and our walk to match. And Father, it's discouraging at times to watch brothers and sisters in Christ around the United States who are zealous, but they're not zealous for good. They're zealous for their own purposes, for their agenda, for their political stance. Would to God that we were zealous for lost souls. Would to God that we were zealous in that way and intense about our prayer lives and our purity and our evangelism and our missions. Oh, Father, we need to get a redefinition of zeal. 
We need to understand what living the good life is. We've been bought into the lie that the good life is consumption in the American culture. But it's far, far different than that. The good life is one where our life and our lips matter for the sake of the gospel. Father, I pray you'll help us to repent, to be broken of that, to change, to be willing to take this social media fast, starting today, that we wouldn't need to be on there, Father. We need to take a break, and we need to come back to you with our lives and our lips. Help us to do that the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.